love you and I thank you for the way that you have shown grace today and how you do not neglect your children. You are so kind. Lord, open your, your word to us. I confess the authority of John 6, 63, that your word is life, what you say is life, and your words are actually spirit and truth. And that is life-giving and need that. I need this. And I pray that you'd speak clearly to us tonight, please. We love you, Lord Jesus, and thank you that you are the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And ask your blessings now in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So here's what we're going to do tonight. It's going to be pretty thick. We're going to hit it pretty hard, hit it pretty fast. We're going to look at Isaiah 12, which is absolutely beautiful. I love Isaiah 12 and his language. I remember as a teenager, when I was like 15, 16 years old, reading this for the first time, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is, yeah, that's me. I want that to be me. But then 13 to 24, boy, it's tough. <laughs> That's a lot of material where Isaiah describes the judgment of, of God on the regional, national level, but it even goes to the global level, and I should have made an additional note. It's even cosmic judgment, and we'll get to that in a second. So he's not just judging Damascus. He's not just judging Jerusalem. He's judging the earth. Oh, he's not just judging the earth. He's judging angels, which, you know, kind of short circuits us just a little bit because we think, you know, it's perfect in heaven, right? It's perfect in the spirit world and, and nothing. There's no problems with the will of God in heaven. We'll get to that. So, um, all right, with that in mind, a little intro to prophecy and cosmic dualism. Uh, when you read scripture, particularly prophecy like Isaiah, it's really good to keep in mind that Isaiah can, can speak as though it's the present about past things, as though it's the present about future things. And it's, it's a little confusing and you want to go, well, is he talking about right now? Is he talking about in the future? And the answer is yes, because it's dualistic. Because, you know, for example, when he, when he talks about... Um, uh, the son, you remember this, the son of Isaiah, Mohar Shalal Hashbaz, right? Which means swift to the, to the spoils of war, which means the name of the son is God is going to judge, going to judge quickly, and those who win are going to rush in and get the spoils, get the prize, all right? And that's so ancient Mediterraneans literally thought. That's a very classic Hebrew uh, Semitic idea. And... So who's he talking about? Is Moher Shalal Hashbaz, the son, who will be the wonderful counselor, the, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace? Or is it Jesus? Which one? Who's the virgin that gives the son? Well, the answer is yes. It is the son of Isaiah. It is that man with a very peculiar name. And, and most, uh, Moses, uh, Isaiah's wife is the unnamed prophetess, you know, the unnamed wife that she's the virgin who brings forth the child, who will be this amazing leader. So historically, we know that's who it is. But theologically, we know it's Jesus. Welcome to prophecy, where it can be, all three perspectives can be addressed in a very compressed, dense view of scripture. So you get this dualism where two things are happening at the same time. And you're gonna actually see a lot of that in this, this section of Isaiah. So, all right, let's go to the sweet stuff, Isaiah. 12. I love this. So this is what, what Isaiah says. And by the way, I got I to gotta make sure you get this. 
This is spoken over the remnant of Israel. So what does that already tell you when there's a remnant? What does that imply? Things are bad. bad. Judgments already come and a remnant has been spared from that. Does that hint at something in the future? The saved, those who are truly born again, not just church members, not just staff members, not just religious people, but those who are born again, who are literally have experienced the new birth, they are the remnant. And so here we go again, your first hint at dualism. So verse 12, verse one, or chapter 12, verse one, then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, Lord, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted, praise the Lord in song, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Rejoice and shout for joy, you inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Beautiful language. I remember again reading this as a very, very young man. The imagery that salvation is like a wellspring and you can take a bucket or you could take a ladle of some sort and just scoop out water and drink this gift of salvation. It's beautiful. It represents idealism. It represents an ideal faith. It represents that God is for us, not against us. But it implies that we are turning to him and no other gods. And that's the key idea, that we turn to him and no other gods. That's the whole point of the judgment section. Uh, I do want to ask you to to focus on this. So um, verse 4 on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call him the same. Make known his deeds. Just a simple say, a statement. We who are truly born again can talk to God. We can talk to him in prayer. But we can also make known his deeds among the people. We can talk about him. That's really significant. We can talk to him, but we can also talk about him, right? So if I could be so bold as to push it just a bit, um, Jesus said, you know, Luke's gospel and, and other places that, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What if we never get around to talking about God in public places? What does it say about us? When, when we, man, we'll chatter on and prattle on about what, the grandkids? You know, about the, the greatest college team, you know, the greatest pro team, whatever it is, politics. We can go, we can yak for hours about a movie script and all these things and your favorite stuff and your favorite uh, recipes for the holidays. And those are good things. It's not a bad thing to talk about, you know, pumpkin spice lattes and all these amazing things. But you know what? Um, 
when we have the ability to draw water from the wellsprings of salvation, we not only talk to God, but we can talk about him. And it's a curious thing that we never, sometimes never get around to that. It's almost like we have bought, we, we, we consumed not the wellspring of God's salvation, but the, the Kool-Aid of politic, the Kool-Aid of, of, of postmodern, post-Christian culture where, where there's such a separation between church and state that you can't talk about God. Don't bring it up in the workplace because you're not sure who you're going to offend. So for heaven's sake, shut up. Just keep it quiet and keep your, your faith to yourself. And you can follow Ben Carson, classic example of what they're doing to Ben Carson right now, because he speaks up, you know. Uh, Herschel Walker, the Georgia issue. Herschel is unashamed to talk about God in public places. Um, I'm not asking any of you to wear placards that say the end is near, God hates sin, and you're going to die and go to hell. I'm not asking that. I'm just saying, come on, come on. Can we not talk about God? That's just a really good thing to do, right? And to not be ashamed. Um, for example, you know, um, what do you want me to say? Do you want me to say that someone was experienced healing in my office today at the clinic because I'm really good? Man, I'm good. I'm so smart. You want me to say that? Or do you want me to say, you know what? Do you know what God did today? Do you know what the Lord did? He was amazing what he did. Oh my gosh, I'm sitting there and they said so-and-so and I said so-and-so and so-and-so. I mean, God was right there, man. He was in it. He was the third person in the room. He was incredible. And, and they cried. And, 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 and by the way, here was one of the gestures. They went, they said, I've never known that. I said, how cool is that? Look what God's doing. Now, what do you want me to say? Which one? Because both could be said, but they have profoundly different perspectives, right? It's okay to talk to God. It's okay to talk about him. And by the way, the same idea, verse 5, praise the Lord in song, right? Let this be known throughout the earth. Hey, you know, it's okay to sing to him. It's also okay to sing about him, yep, and to share, share those things. So beautiful. By the way, um, pop quiz, you guys ready? This will be on the test. Rejoice and shout for joy, you inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Janice, who's the Holy One? Who? Who? Exactly. Good. Ah, I love what you're thinking historically. That's good. Who's the Holy One of Israel? God, right? Kathy says, God? Do we have a split? Have we had a split yet in the church? Is it God or Jesus? Which one? God or the Holy Spirit? Or is it oh, the group of the holy ones? Anybody? What do you think? Anybody else? Kathy, I think you're spot on. It's Yahweh. It is Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth. But here we go. <laughs> here we go. Past, present, future. It's obviously this very same language that as you move to the New Testament, it becomes a descriptor of Jesus. Yeah, but at this point, it's Yahweh. Yeah, beautiful. All right, now. Uh, wow, this is tough. There's, there's a really, really tough list of people. Now, geographically, what do you notice about this? Just geographically. If you could make Israel the centerpiece, what do you notice? Certainly, absolutely. But it's primarily everybody north and everybody south. Okay, Like when you say Kush, you're talking about southern Egypt, way down. 
South Egypt. Uh, today, we would call it Sudan. Uh, so this is a huge section of land, and God is confronting all of the enemies to the north, all of the enemies to the south. So from this, and even moving toward the east in the, in, uh, the Arabia, Arabia. In their language, it would be Saudi Arabia. All right, so prophecy against Babylon. Man, here we go. Um, what I want to do is just pull, pull a couple of verses out because it's just so we want to cover all this. So look at uh, 13.9 and watch this. Um, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Watch this. For the stars of heaven and their constellation will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. So I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their wrongdoing. I will put an end to the audacity of the proud and humiliate the arrogance of the tyrants. Does that sound familiar? But the sun and the moon and the stars. Does it sound familiar? Absolutely, yeah. And not just Revelation, in Matthew 24, Jesus says this. Also in 12, the springs of life and water. Yep, there you go, there you go. So Jesus himself quotes Isaiah the prophet for the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, okay? Um, verse 19 of, of chapter 13, Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of Chaldean pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know anything about the hanging gardens of Babylon? Does that ring a bell? Do you remember that, Amy? It's considered to be one of the great wonders of the world at the time. Magnificent what the Babylonians had accomplished. Can you imagine it being destroyed as though it was Sodom and Gomorrah, which is destroyed in the fiery, sulfuric wrath of God. Hailstones. Yeah. And also, when we Revelation as well, Babylon will be Right, you're right. Yeah, and at that point, um, David, uh, Babylon becomes a code word for... The center part of the world, basically. What's that? The center most of the world, basically. For Rome. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, the great whore of Babylon. <clears throat> All right, 14, you have a taunt. Now we're going to have fun. Talk about dualism, boy. Here it comes. Chapter 14, this is the taunt. So this is Israel mocking her abusers. All right, look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, you star of the morning, you son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who defeated the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be brought down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. What does that sound like? 
study on this. Okay. Exactly, David, exactly. So, yeah, king of Babylon, oh, you have fallen, you know. But it is considered by other writers, you know, in, in the scriptures that this is Satan. Yep, absolutely. Um, there's an interesting reference. I want you to appreciate this just historically. <clears throat> Look at 1419. This is about the judgment on Babylon who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. What do you know about ancient burial practices and what is absolutely, for an honorable person, especially in Judaism, by the way, what is one of the most disrespectful, dishonorable things you could do with a person? Not bury them. That's considered horrific, especially for a Jew. That was considered horrible. In fact... You can tie in, if you remember some of my teachings, the teachings where Jesus walks on the water, right? And the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. Do you remember that, Janice? What does that imply? They were not buried. They died at sea. They died at sea. They were drowning victims. And so they were disembodied spirits wandering about in these watery places, uh, terrified, longing to be buried. They really believe that. And so when they say it was a ghost, that wasn't cheap talk or some spooky stuff from a scary movie that we, we think of today, like a, thinking like a child. They actually believe that, that you had to be buried. And if not, you were a disembodied spirit, and it was a terrible thing. So this language of your body's going to be trampled on, it's like it's one of the harshest things that you could say to an honorable person. Yeah. All right, Assyria to the north. The Lord, verse 24, the Lord of armies has sworn, saying, certainly, just as I have intended, so it will happen. It has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. Um, I, I want you to appreciate this single idea. God is absolutely sovereign. He is absolutely in authority. And Isaiah writes as though this authority is cosmic. There's nothing that happens without his is a knowledge and, and uh, that he is even approved. Now, that causes a lot of problems for us today. All right? So we're going to do a quick theological scan, and I don't want you to be afraid to answer. I want you to reckon with this. I want you to imagine there's two zones. All right? There's zone A, there's zone B. Zone A is heaven. You ready? Give me a percentage. Go from the gut. How much of God's will is done in heaven? 100%? Hmm? 100%? Which part of it? What's that? Which part of it? Which part of heaven? Sure, there's, you know, Paul talks about the third heaven and, and those things. If you're Mormon, it gets really complicated. <laughs> Seven layers, and if you're lucky, you get into lower mode, you never see God. Uh, probably didn't wear your holy underwear that day or something. I don't know. But, um, so, uh, yeah, what, how much of God's will is done in heaven, Jenna said 100%. Does that make sense? Kathy, get the nod from Kathy. Bruce, what do you think? I think probably so. Okay. What about angelic disobedience? It's got a little complicated there. Something, something going on. Yeah, that's right, Felicia. All right, so, okay, let's just say it's a super, super high percentage. 
99.9%. That makes us feel better. All right, what about the lower zone, earth? How much of God's will is done on earth? Yes, ma'am. Great question. Great question. Ouch, you just... What's that? <laughs> no, 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 you're doing super because that's where we're going. And by the way, that's where C.S. Lewis went. So you, look how smart you are. You're right up there with, with Clive. So how much of, uh, is, of God's will is done on earth? It's 100% all the 100%? Anybody disagree? I'm going to go with 2 Going to go with 2%? Okay, you're so negative. Um, anybody else? It's tough. It's convoluted because I'm like, okay, if God knows everything that's going to happen and he knows the decisions we're going to make, then, then, or he knows what he's going to do. I guess my, my question has always kind of been like, if you, if you, does God change his mind? Does he ever change his mind? According I mean, to the scriptures, there's a reference to that, yes. To praying and, you know, when, when yeah. he... Can we turn his heart? Can we turn feel, his hand? Yeah, yeah, he turned his heart and he didn't... He was like, you know, okay, if there are ten people in Saba, <clears> or whoever, <throat> you know, and it was yeah. before it was this high number. And I don't know. So, like, how does that work? It's tough. Uh, Kathy? So, I think even though... I think in that situation, that is more for our benefit as people. We read that and we see that our prayers matter. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's it's like a, a just a concrete example. Whereas God already had that plan when He was going to. Here, yeah, here He knows the outcome. Yeah, He knows yeah. the outcome, and I think yeah. that some of these things that we struggle with. Yeah. Well, you know, is He truly omniscient and omnipotent? Is He definitely is? But a lot of the things that seem like he's not is for our benefit, for our understanding, sure, and sure. for our learning. That's, that's actually good, Kathy, yeah. So remember this idea of past, present, future. Um, yesterday during the monsoon, right? Um, it's like, hey, it's time to go home, you know? So um, I pull out of here, and, and Tammy, I'm seeing a sea red lights, tail lights, and, and it's like dead stop before you even get on the ramp to get on 430 to get on the bridge. And I go, oh, no. And I've got this option. Do I go left and loop around and grab 30 and come way around and all that stuff? And I thought, oh, man, in this rain, there's no telling me to get tangled up in. So I go, ah, I'll just stay in the lane. I'll, 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 I'll risk it and head for the bridge. It was bumper to bumper, backed up, dead still. Taillights. Now, at that moment, <laughs> can I be transparent? Can I have time on the blue couch, Tammy? My high need for control kicked in. Because guess what? I couldn't see what was ahead of me. I couldn't see the big picture. And, of course, where is the big picture? All the way at the opposite end of the bridge. And there was a two-car wreck immediately on the left side, which is pushing people away. But there was a five-car pile-up right on the right side, so it's kind of like this, and everybody's, you know, three into two into one, and all. it was it was a mess. 
And when I finally got there, it's like, makes sense. And boom, let's go. Come on, let's go. And got home, and it was great. My blood pressure was through the roof. And so, ah, what's up with control and chaos? Can you imagine breaking out of our time-space continuum and having the intellectual capacity to see the past, the present, and the future simultaneously? Like the fourth or fifth or sixth dimension. You get the idea. Can you imagine breaking out of the bounds, the boundaries of time and space? That is something God does. And Kathy, you're on to something. He knows things that we don't know. In fact, Isaiah says he can declare the end at the beginning and the beginning at the end. And so when it comes to the sovereignty of God, Felicia, he can't help but know, you know, he can't help but know. And so it's this very tense, very tense reality that in one instance, he can't help but know. And he's causing all things to work together for his good. But we have choice. And there's a lot of tension in that, you know. Um, Look at verse 27. For the Lord of armies has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his outstretched hand, who can turn it back? The sovereignty of God. Wow, it's powerful. So we had 100%, 99 99.9% in heaven. We've got a 2%er down here. You know, and we got a 20%er on earth. God's will be done on earth. Anybody else? No, I said 100% all the way right Yeah, you're 100%, 100%. All right, you're a good Calvinist, actually. That's really good. <laughs> so, you know what Jesus taught us? Think of the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, I want you to say, Father of us, the one in the heavens, let be holy the name of you. Janice, let be done the will of you so as it is in heaven, so upon the earth. So Felicia, what's the implication? It may, well, <laughs> I love it. It means it's not being done on earth. If it was, he wouldn't have said so. Yes, yes. So much so that Jesus believed it represents what should happen on earth. And he wants us to ask for that to happen. So the implication, it's not happening on earth. So how much? Now we're back to Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's 10 righteous people, Lord, you know. So is there a percentage of people that are seeking after Yahweh, that are seeking after the will of God, and they do so in humility and brokenness? Yes. What's the percentage? I have no idea. But it's not enough. Whatever it is, it's not enough. Now, if you want to know a really depressing clinical perspective, do you have any idea the pain that's going to be happening in Little Rock, Arkansas tonight? And the abuse, the abuse that's going to happen tonight in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. Remember the, 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 the movie that's a bit of a mockery, but it's also a bit profound. Bruce Almighty, do you remember that? I think very little of, of the star of the show. I, I have very little opinions of him. But, but there's an interesting moment when in, trying, in playing God, he hears all the prayers. Do you remember that scene? It's like, it's like chaos. 
because he's got, you know, billions of people praying to him at the same time, and his brain can't handle it. Of course, God is allowing him to see just what it's like to be finite, but try to be responsible. Really, it's really kind of a profound moment. Absolutely. That if it's my will be done, I'm going to destroy the place. <laughs> Absolutely destroy it. But God's will be done. So that's the whole point. So here's what I'm getting at. Can you imagine being able to hear all of that and make sense out of it? The prayers that are going to be prayed tonight by little boys and little girls who are asking that that man stop hitting mommy. Or mommy would stop hitting brother or sister. Stuff that's unthinkable. I'm telling you, God's will is not done on earth because God's not into child abuse. In fact, we'll, we'll get to it actually in Isaiah. He is all about protecting the innocent. All about it. God doesn't get his kicks off that at all. So Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or in Greek, as it is in heaven, so let it be done upon the earth. Tough, isn't it? It's tough. All right. Philistia. Anybody remember the Philistines and some dude named Goliath? Man. So the year that Ahaz died, that's about 717 BC. Wow. The arrogance of Philistia. Verse 30. Those who are most helpless will eat and the poor will lie down in security. So there's something about the Philistines that they are cruel. And they don't protect the weak, and they don't protect the poor. They rob them of food and protection. And Isaiah says, when God will judge Philistia, the helpless will eat. There'll be food for the poor. Verse 32, what answer will, you, will one give to the messengers of the nations that the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people will take refuge in it? It's beautiful. Judgment on Moab, uh, Moab and Israel, it's tough. Um, you might remember that uh, Israel during the wilderness wanderings, it was the, the prostitutes of Moab that brought Israel down. Just a polluting, corrupting influence. Judgment on Moab. Judgment uh, of Moab. It's, it's a devastating. Look at 16.6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride, and fury. His idle boasts are false. Boy, pride is like a hot button for God. Chapter 17, Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed. By the way, that's just north of Israel. Um, look at verse 6, 17, 6. Yet the gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree. Uh, top or three olives on the topmost branch, or two or three olives on the topmost branch, four or five in the branches of a fruit vine, declares the Lord on that day. Man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. There's another reference. By the way, Holy One of Israel, 33 times in Isaiah. And he will not look to the altars. Please pay attention to that, 17.8. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made. He's attacking the issue of idolatry. But if you want to be a part of the remnant, you turn to the Holy One of Israel. You don't turn to the local gods, the gods of Moab or any of the, any of the national deities that surrounded Israel, the Asherim and the incense altars. Look at the root problem, 1710. Here it is, the root problem. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. There it is. 
There it is. Does anybody, um, have you ever experienced this? It's a bit rhetorical. You feel free to comment if you want. You've, you know the sting of having relationships that they draw near to you when they need you and they use you and when the need is met, how do they treat you? Gone. And, and you end up feeling very, very used and, and quite dishonored in that exchange. You get a few gray hairs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have forgotten the God of your salvation. What is that tremendous line on Seinfeld, George Costanza? He's an atheist when things go well. And when they don't, he suddenly believes. Yeah. He's an atheist when things go well. It's a great line. And, and George can't stand him, George Costanza. Boy, he epitomizes so much of the worst of humanity, you know, lying when it'd be so much smarter to tell the truth, you know, and he, and he just lies and lies and lies. It epitomizes selfishness and arrogance. Yeah, I don't believe in God at all until something bad happens. Now he's out to get me, you know. So uh, there's something there. We forget God, and then life knocks us on our hind ends, and we come running like all of a sudden he matters. You know? so, all right, 18 to Ethiopia, uh, verse 7 of 18. At that time, a gift of tribute will be brought to the Lord of armies from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide, the place of the name of the Lord of armies to Mount Zion. God's going to turn the tables going to turn the tables exactly message to Egypt this is absolutely chapter 19 I wish you'd pour over it it is beautiful because it's a chapter of judgment but it's a chapter of restoration to Egypt to Egypt verse verse 1 behold the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them and then he goes into these descriptors that sound a whole lot like the ten plagues of, against Egypt, the Egyptian pantheon, which pantheos, all gods, all the gods of Egypt, the ten, or the ten plagues confront the ten gods of Egypt. And, and you read this amazing language and, and very, very serious language. Um, verse 16, on that day, the Egyptians will become like women and they will tremble and be in great fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of armies, which he is going to wave over them. That's, that's military language. That's, he's waving. It's a signal of war. The war is beginning. It's time. You know. The land of Judah will become a cause of shame to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in great fear because of the plan of the Lord the Lord of armies, which he is making against them. But look at this, verse 21. This is beautiful. So the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord on that day, and they will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will even vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, but striking, but healing, so that they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. 
It's restoration of Egypt, not Israel. And then look at this, verse 24. On that day, Israel will be the third party to Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of armies has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, in Israel, my inheritance. God wants to restore. I mean, 2 Peter 3, 9 God is not cruelly patient. He doesn't want anyone, anyone to suffer and perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Uh, more material on Babylon, uh, Edom in the Arabia, and pronouncements against that. And then verse 22, the Valley of Vision. 22 is super tough because it's about Jerusalem, the judgment on Jerusalem. Israel is not going to be spared from this judgment. It's going to happen. Uh, verse 8, 22, 8, he's removing the defenses of Judah. And you, there's something so profound here. Look at this, verse 9. You saw that the breaches of the wall of the city of David were many. The secure walls of Jerusalem are falling apart. And so people were fleeing. And you collected the waters of the lower pool. Then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration who, him who planned it long ago. That's a real good example that humans in their ingenuity can miss that God let the whole thing happen and that God made water in that location. And instead of giving tribute and praise to God, they bark God who God really is. There's an interesting line at verse 13, a little saying, uh, verse 13, instead there's going to be joy and jubilation, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. And he's talking about Israel with no regard for God and that this proverb is spoken in Israel, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, which is Paul directly quotes that. In other words, life outside of God is absurd, so you might as well become a hedonist and eat and drink because tomorrow you're going to die. Uh, perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker, uh, the one with the most toys wins in the end. That's the idea. Yeah, party, just party. Party hard because there's nothing left. What do you got? You know, Go buy a case of Pop-Tarts and just eat all the Pop-Tarts you want. That wasn't even close to being funny, was it? Why did I say that? I did get you to grin. All right, verse 22, 22, 22. Then I will put the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. That's right. That's quoted in Revelation 3, 7, 8. Beautiful language. 23, the fall of Tyre. Uh, there's a reference to Tarshish. Jonah tried to flee there. 24. Judgment, now judgment's global. Absolutely global. Um, verse 15. Therefore glorify, glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the coastlands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. But I say, I'm finished. I'm finished. Woe is me. Fierce judgment on the earth. Look at verse 21. This is fascinating. Uh, so it will happen on that day that the Lord will punish the rebellious angels of heaven on high 
and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. What does that sound like? Remember? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's rebellion in heaven. <laughs> the great rebellion where Lucifer raised himself up against God and according to Revelation, took a third of the angels with him. All right. I know that was a fast and intense run through all those chapters and 25. We'll slow it down. It's beautiful. All right. Um, is there anything that you see that's important that you'd like to comment about uh, or questions? Right. You know, I mean, he, he didn't just decide willy-nilly, you know, everything's very planned out and very methodical, and he knows about what's going on. So I guess I was thinking over overall his will is being done, but if, you know, now you pointed out the Lord's Prayer, and obviously humans don't do his will at all. So I guess I'm a little confused about that. Okay. Um, okay. Like, what, what's God's will? What are we talking about? <laughs> Anybody else a question or something similar to that? I guess I've always gone back to when I can't wrap my head around something. Um, I imagine, like, say, like that stained stained glass, you know, there. Right. That that I can see this much mm. of the picture. That's why it doesn't make sense. And I just have to kind of stop there because I can, I can spiral myself into mm -hmm. almost. Fatalism. Yeah, I mean, it gets dark. Yeah. yeah, it gets dark. So here's some thoughts to consider. We need to define the terms predestination, and we need to define uh, uh, foreordained. So let's start there. What does it mean? What is predestination? Break down the word. It's think of it, think of it as, as a compound word. We go somewhere. There you go. I like that. Yeah, predestination. So a predetermined destination. Like everything's mapped out exactly the way it's supposed. To, it's going to happen. Yeah. There's yeah. No variation. Is yeah. What it says to me. Yep. Yep. And then, so what's for ordained? kind of the same, that God has ordained, selected, has an intent and a purpose, and that will be carried out, right? What about this concept, foreknowledge? What does that mean? Yeah, again, it's that perspective. I can, I can see the beginning of the bridge, the middle of the bridge, and the end of the bridge all at the same time. So, so let's say, uh, does God know, this is silly, but bear with me. Does God know that who the next president is of the United States? Mm -hmm. Can he help it? Mm -hmm. What? Yes. How can he help it? Well, Meaning, can he, in other words, it's his true nature to know that. Oh, yes. Yeah. If, if he didn't know it, then he would cease being God. Oh. Right. But you make, can he help? Oh, could he make it happen? Well, there you go. And uh, the answer is yes to that, too. <laughs> You know, because he, it says in, in Proverbs 25, should be about verse 2, that the king's heart is 
is in the hand of the Lord and he can turn it, turn the king in any direction he wants, just like water can, can reroute or, or carve the earth. And the, change, the, the pressure from the water can change the shape of a river. So yeah, God does, can do that. He can pull the strings. He can make it happen. He rises up. He destroys. He plants. He brings to life. He uproots and he burns in fire. Yes. So where we, tr- where we get tripped up, in my mind, is when we confuse all those things together. Right? God can't help but know these things. All right? And here's the tension. Like, let's say something really bad is going to happen to some family in Little Rock tonight. Okay? Is it the will of God that a woman be beaten by her husband tonight? Is it the will of God? No. So the fact that it happens doesn't mean it was foreordained or predestined. It doesn't mean that. It means God already knows about it. Right? But what is foreordained and what is predetermined is that man who's abusing his wife will be radically judged by God for that. But that's in the future. Whether it's immediate or, or, or way in the future on the timeline. But there will be a day of reckoning. And that's really what Isaiah is all about. There will be a day of reckoning. So just because it happens doesn't mean it's God's will, as in this is what he wants. All right, now let's weave in um, Romans 8.28. God causes all things to work together for good. Right, and, and, and there's the brilliance in, in God that he can take the bad things of Egypt that happened to Israel when they were enslaved and being punished and abused. And he can turn that around and accomplish great good out of that. Can God bring good out of suffering? Absolutely, yeah. Um, It is not God's will that there be suffering. God doesn't get his kicks. God's not into child abuse. But God knows how to help us through that and how to recover from that, or, or, or gives us this obligation. But again, if you do a close read of Isaiah, you find out some of the stuff that really upsets God about these enemy nations. Number one, idols. Number two, a disregard for the poor. Number three, an inability to protect the innocent. Okay? And last one, pride. Idolatry, pride, uh, not, not providing for the poor and not protecting the innocent. That really... That really upsets God, all right? And it's all through this stuff, yep. And so consequently, so if we think it's child abuse is so disgusting, then what are we doing to help kids? What do we do? Bad mouth it? Get upset at God? Well, he don't do nothing. He's just sitting up there in heaven, ignoring it, watching TV probably. He doesn't care. He's like, oh, really? You just described yourself. (laughs) You're the one that would rather sit down and watch TV. And get involved at the Crisis Pregnancy Center or something that's going to help protect kids or women. Yeah. So God's, yeah, God's brilliant. Um, so chapter 25 is going to be beautiful. And, uh, and Isaiah is going to, going to focus in on the glory to come. It's absolutely beautiful. So, all right. Let's look at this. I know it's time. Thank you for being so very, very patient with me. So very, very patient. Thank you. If I could comment, I would say this. Um, If we could say there's one thing, 
one thing that God did, Sue, that's really going to make all things work together for good, the one thing that's going to right all wrongs, that's going to fix this broken mess, wherever it's located, it's this, it's Jesus, all right? In other words, God wasn't up, up in heaven busy watching his cosmic TV, ignoring what's going on. God sent his son. God heard the cries of Egypt. God hears the prayer of the orphan. God sent his son, gave his son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish at the coming judgment, but would know eternal life and be a part of the remnant. And that's called the gospel, right? So does God care? Absolutely. And the death of his son was the answer, the ultimate answer to this horrific mess of what goes on on planet Earth. And that's why we have to talk to God and talk about God. Otherwise, we fail the Great Commission. And we take our little lamps, our little candles, and put them under the bushel basket. And Jesus said, hey, you can't hide a city on a hill. If you're truly born again, you're light. Get on the lampstand. Let's go. Let's go. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had broken it, excuse me, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Is that for grace? This is for me. He knew I needed it, yeah. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant, a new way of dealing with an old problem. The new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and he will come. <laughs> Abba, Father, love you. Thank you for mercy that goes beyond anything that we can imagine. And our heart cry is that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we take the bread, we take the cup, and we say thank you. Have mercy on us, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.